Section three of the Watergate Report, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume two. Chapter four Campaign Financing, Part three. C. Ashland Oil Company, Incorporated. Ashland Oil Company, Incorporated, approximately 70th among American manufacturing companies, with assets of about $1.5 billion and annual sales of about $2.3 billion, made a $100,000 pre-April 7, 1972 cash contribution to the Finance Committee to re-elect the President. Orrin Atkins, Chairman of the Board and Chief Executive Officer of Ashland Oil Company, testifying at a public session, stated that in early March 1972, Maurice Stans, by telephone, asked for a $100,000 contribution for President Nixon's campaign, and further, that a $10,000 advertisement in the Republican Convention brochure be purchased. Atkins explained that after discussing Stans's request with the Ashland President and two of its Vice Presidents, he concluded that the corporation should make the contribution and purchase the advertisement. Atkins related that the money for the contribution was dispersed from their subsidiary, Ashland Petroleum Gabon Corporation, Gabon, Africa, and charged to an undeveloped leasehold sometime in late March 1972. The use of false vouchers and false bonuses to generate funds for this contribution was considered and rejected by Atkins and his colleagues. The Gabon subsidiary was used largely in order to prevent, or at least to postpone, taking the transaction as an income tax deduction. In late March 1972, William R. Seaton, vice chairman of the board of Ashland Oil, picked up $100,000 in cash in Geneva, Switzerland. It was delivered on April 3, 1972, by Clyde Webb, a vice president of Ashland, to Stans, who dumped it in his desk drawer and said thank you. Atkins explained why the decision was made to withdraw the money from the Swiss account. Well, $100,000 in cash is a commodity which U.S. banks, I do not believe, normally deal in from day to day. But I think the Swiss, being a more sophisticated financial society than ours, I believe, are used to dealings in such numbers, and it does not excite anybody's curiosity if you walk in and ask for $100,000 out of a Swiss bank. If you did that in the United States, everybody and his brother would be wondering what you did with it. Sometime in the spring of 1973, Stans told Webb by telephone that there was a list of contributors, and that Ashland Oil was on it, and that he was trying to reconstruct the list, and would like to have from us, Ashland Oil, any information that we could reconstruct. No response was made to Stans's request. Later, in a letter dated July 9, 1973, Kenneth Parkinson, counsel for FCRP, advised Atkins that he understood that Atkins had informed the Finance Committee that the contribution of $100,000 was made by Mrs. Atkins and himself. Atkins stated at that time he had not advised anyone on the Finance Committee who had made the contribution. 
Meanwhile, in a letter dated July 16, 1973, Ashland's counsel likewise informed FCRP of the corporate source of the contribution and requested that the $100,000 be returned to Ashland Petroleum Gabon Corporation. On the same date, FCRP transmitted a check for $100,000 payable to Ashland Petroleum Gabon Corporation to the company's attorney. When asked, what were the reasons that prompted you to make the illegal corporate gift, Atkins responded, Well, again, the situation today is difficult to rationalize. We were not seeking any particular privilege or benefit, because we don't do any significant business with the government. I think all we were attempting to do was to assure ourselves of a forum to be heard. Were we a larger factor in our respective industries, we could expect to have access to administrative officials in the executive branch of government with ease. But being a relatively unknown corporation, despite our size, we felt we needed something that would be sort of a calling card, something that would let us in the door and make our point of view heard. We didn't expect those points of view to be accepted, but only from the point of view of being able to express them, and that was our thinking or rationale as to why we were interested in making any type of contribution. When questioned at public session, Atkins said that the contribution produced no distinctive benefit to Ashland Oil. Atkins included in this respect the subsequent action by the government lifting import quotas on foreign oil. However, he was shown a copy of a letter which he sent to a stockholder, which stated, there was a good business reason for making the contribution, and although illegal in nature, I am confident that it distinctly benefited the corporation and the stockholders. Atkins explained the contribution's intent was to give us a means of access to present our point of view to the executive branch of the government. Although in view of the timing of events, Atkins said, no such benefits occurred, However, three days after the contribution, Ashland officials met with officials of the Office of Emergency Preparedness on the subject of obtaining greater supplies of crude oil. There is no evidence that the meeting and the contribution were connected. Atkins acknowledged that at no time did Stans state that he expected the contribution to be corporate, but stated, I can't testify as to what Mr. Stans had in mind, but the minute he mentioned it, I knew it had to come from the company. A hundred thousand dollars is an awful lot of money, and I knew what I had in the bank, and it wasn't anywhere close to that, and I knew what my associates had, and there was only one source that it could come from, from my point of view. Atkins said that, as far as he knew, Stans had no reason to believe that he could personally afford a hundred thousand dollars. Stans did not threaten Atkins, and Atkins was under no obligation to Stans. The solicitation conversation took about three minutes, and according to Atkins, Stans said something like, Mr. Atkins, I would like to have a donation. Yet Atkins felt under considerable pressure to contribute the requested $100,000. Atkins noted that this was the only request for a contribution from a former cabinet officer, Senator Irvin then addressed Atkins. Senator Irvin, Mr. Atkins, it looks to me as if Mr. Stans had made an assessment. Mr. Atkins, I think that is a correct assessment. Senator Irvin, 
In other words, he told you, in effect, that he would let you off with a contribution of $100,000 plus a $10,000 advertisement in the convention paper. Mr. Atkins. I believe you are right. Senator Irvin. He never left you much option in the matter, did he? Mr. Atkins. I don't believe so. It is true that I didn't have much of an option. Senator Irvin. Now, this question of maintaining the anonymity of contributions is a two-way street. It not only protects the disclosure of the fact of the identity of the contributor, but it also prevents disclosures of facts which would indicate, give a lead, as to who raised the contribution and by what method it was raised. Mr. Atkins. Yes, sir. Senator Irvin. Mr. Stans made a great profession when he was before this committee that he was merely trying to conceal the identity of contributors. But do you not agree with me that the method, when you concealed the identity of a contributor, you also concealed a method by which you can find out how the recipient of the contribution got the contribution? Mr. Atkins, yes. Senator Irvin, it is certainly a human weakness or desire for anyone engaged in business to have a friendly ear in government. Mr. Atkins, that is right, very much so. Senator Irvin, and so, departing from the realm of politics into the spiritual, this method of raising campaign contributions now borders on extortion, does it not? Mr. Atkins, very much so. Ashland Petroleum Gabon Corporation was indicted for making a corporate contribution, and Atkins was indicted for aiding and abetting the corporation in making the corporate contribution. The corporation entered a plea of guilty and was fined $5,000, and Atkins entered a plea of nolo contendere and was fined $1,000. D. Braniff Airways, Incorporated. Braniff Airways, Incorporated contributed $40,000 in cash from corporate funds to FCRP sometime between March 28, 1972 and April 7, 1972. In a staff interview, Harding Lawrence, chairman of the board, stated that on March 1, 1972, in the presence of Daniel Hofgren, vice chairman of FCRP, he made an unsolicited $10,000 cash contribution to Maurice Stans. Lawrence identified the source of this contribution as $5,000 from his personal funds and $5,000 from the personal funds of C. Edward Acker, the president of Braniff. Lawrence said Stans thanked him for the contribution, but stated that he felt Braniff executives could do more, because the company was doing much better than the rest of the industry. Stans suggested that a donation in the neighborhood of $100,000 would be more appropriate. Lawrence told Stans that he would see what could be done. Lawrence ultimately decided that Braniff could contribute $40,000. Because he was to be out of the country until just prior to the April 7, 1972 deadline, and because of the need to make the contribution before that date in order to avoid disclosure, Lawrence delegated the task of securing the funds to a group of Braniff executives. This group, consisting of R. H. Burke, Jr., Vice President for Public Affairs, John Casey, Executive Vice President for Operations and Services, 
Charles South, Vice President for Latin America, and Andrew J. Phelan, deceased, Vice President and Treasurer, devised a plan whereby Camilo Fabrega, Braniff's manager in Panama, would use CAMFAB, a Panamanian entity owned and controlled by Fabrega, as a conduit for obtaining the funds for the contribution. Phelan caused Braniff voucher number 083750, dated March 29, 1972, to be issued, approving the payment of $40,000 to CAMFAB as an advance for expenses and services. A Braniff check was issued to CAMFAB and entered on Braniff's books as an account receivable of $40,000 due from CAMFAB. The check was forwarded to Fabrega, who endorsed it on behalf of CAMFAB, and cashed it at a bank in Panama. He returned the proceeds in U.S. currency to Braniff officials in Dallas. Subsequently, Lawrence, Acker, and Burke delivered the $40,000 in cash to Stans. The account receivable from the Panamanian entity to the corporation was paid off and liquidated in the following manner. A supply of special ticket stock was placed in the hands of Fabrega. Tickets written upon this ticket stock were sold at ticket counters only by the supervisor in the Braniff Panama office, generally for cash. If a customer wanted to pay by check, regular tickets were used. The receipts were not accounted for as ticket receipts, but were applied to the liquidation of the account receivable from the Panamanian entity. Periodically, on his trips from Panama to the Dallas head office of Braniff, Fabrega would take several thousand dollars in cash for delivery to Braniff. Fabrega described these deliveries as unusual. Since sales of controlled stock by December 1972 had reached only $27,000, and Braniff wanted to liquidate the whole account by the end of the year, Fabrega obtained a personal loan from a Panamanian bank for the remaining $13,000 in that month, and furnished the corporation with a bank draft for $13,000 out of these borrowed funds, thereby producing a total of $40,000 which liquidated the account receivable. Fabrega testified that he subsequently reimbursed himself for the $13,000 through the proceeds of additional sales of the uncontrolled ticket stock through early 1973. According to Braniff, no additional taxes were owed as a result of its corporate contribution. Revenues for the transportation of passengers are entered not on the basis of ticket sales, but on the basis of physical boardings of passengers with tickets. The fact that the uncontrolled ticket stock was sold and the receipts were not accounted for as ticket sales did not affect the corporation's reported revenues or net income for 1972, in view of the timing of the transactions and Braniff's accounting procedures. Only those ticket sales outstanding as of July 31st of any year are taken into income. Since the money was returned to the company by its officers prior to July 31, 1973, no tax consequences resulted. Sometime in March 1972, Stans contacted Lawrence by phone and advised him that as a result of the suit brought by Common Cause, it might become necessary to reveal the names of contributors, and requested a list of the names representing the contribution from Braniff. 
Shortly thereafter, Lawrence met Stans in New York and furnished him the names and addresses of nine individuals. Apparently not all of these people were made aware of the fact that their names were being furnished as the source for the Braniff contribution. On July 5, 1973, Kenneth Wells Parkinson, counsel for the Finance Committee to re-elect the President, forwarded a letter to Lawrence advising him that the committee may be required shortly to disclose the names which he had furnished to Stans. Since this created an immediate problem for Lawrence and Braniff, it was decided to contact the people who had been named and request that they give their personal checks to repay Braniff the $40,000 which had been contributed from unrecorded ticket sales. This was done, and Braniff credited the sum to an unearned passenger transportation account as a reimbursement to Braniff. No request was made of FCRP to return the contribution. On November 12, 1973, Lawrence and Braniff pleaded guilty to non-willful violations of Section 610. Braniff was fined $5,000 and Lawrence $1,000. E. The Carnation Company The Carnation Company has acknowledged that a total of $7,900 in corporate funds was used in making two contributions to President Nixon's 1972 re-election campaign. Although company executives have conceded that they were under no pressure, implicit or otherwise, they felt that the presidential candidate preferred by a majority of the company's executives should be supported by a modest contribution from the company. This philosophy, company officials now say, has been rejected. The first contribution, $2,900, was made in June 1972 to the Finance Committee to re-elect the President. The solicitation was in the form of a mass mailing letter bearing the facsimile signature of Maurice Stans, which went to S. A. Halgren, Senior Vice President of Carnation, and at least one other Carnation executive. The second contribution, $5,000, was solicited by a Los Angeles civic leader who is executive officer of a local retailing concern, who contacted H. Everett Olson, chairman of the board of directors of Carnation, by personal letter or by telephone, requesting him to buy ten $1,000 tickets to a Nixon fundraising dinner sponsored by the Southern California Presidential Committee to be held in September 1972. It was finally decided that only five tickets would be purchased for the dinner. Both the $2,900 and the $5,000 contributions were made by personal checks of Carnation executives, payable respectively to the Finance Committee to re-elect the President and to the Southern California Presidential Dinner Committee. The executives were then reimbursed in cash by Halgren, According to Carnation, the personal checks of the executives were written by them with the expectation of reimbursement. Hulgren obtained the cash for the foregoing reimbursements from corporate funds by charging the $7,900 on the books as a travel expense to a transportation expense account. On December 19, 1973, the Carnation Company and Olson pleaded guilty in U.S. District Court to violation of Title 18 of the U.S. Code, Section 610, by consenting to the corporate contribution. The company was fined $5,000 and Mr. Olson $1,000.
f diamond international corporation the diamond international corporation made contributions from corporate funds to two presidential candidates richard m nixon and edmund s muskie during the 1972 campaign the contribution to the nixon campaign came as a result of the solicitation of Raphael Dubrowin, Vice President of Public Affairs for Diamond International, by Vincent F. Decane, a former Diamond employee who was then Deputy Assistant Secretary of Transportation. Dubrowin, with the approval of Richard J. Walters, Chief Executive Officer, President and Chairman of the Board of Diamond International, had two checks drawn on Diamond's corporate account for $2,500 each, both checks, the first dated February 23, 1972, and the second dated March 27, 1972, were made payable to the First National City Bank of New York. The bank, in turn, issued two $2,500 treasurer's checks to the Effective Government Committee of the Finance Committee for the re-election of the President. A $1,000 contribution was made to Senator Muskie's campaign, on December 14, 1971, based on a letter from Governor Curtis of Maine and a follow-up letter from Gus Clough, a business acquaintance and the public relations director of a Maine paper company, further soliciting funds for Senator Muskie. Mr. DeBrowen, in a telephonic interview with staff investigators, said a major consideration for making this contribution was that Diamond International had business dealings with the state of Maine, the mechanics of the transaction were essentially the same as in the Nixon contribution. On March 7, 1974, Diamond Corporation and Dubrowin entered guilty pleas to violations of Title 18 U.S. Code Section 610 in connection with the above illegal corporate contributions. The corporation was fined $5,000 and Dubrowin $1,000. End of Section 3 Recording by Maria Casper.